0: mm <laughs> Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry.
1: We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios.
0: And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with nurse and CEO of Health, Sandita Agarwal. Her life in India as a young girl desire to push cultural norms and a robust understanding of healthcare and engineering is really helping her pioneer a holistic approach to patient care using virtual nurses. Let's take a listen.
2: Thank you, Joy. Thank you, Robin. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. This is really cool. Um, And I I love your mission of being able to elevate the voice of uh, women in health IT. I think there's such a huge need for it. Thank you. Um, I grew up in a very humble background. My parents were very young when they were put in an arranged marriage, and no food at home. Uh, and being a girl child uh, is not in your favor, <laughs> you know. Um, our traditional families prefer to have boys, so I mostly ended up sort of growing up on the streets, and you know, trying to um, trying to survive sort of on my own. Um, at an early, early stage in my life. I went to school on my own, gave my own name, so that I could go to school, studied by the streetlights.
1: You said you're studying under the streetlights. So you're literally trying to do homework and keep up with education by the light in your town. Right? Is that what you're describing?
2: Yeah. You try to grow up on this, you know, like try to look for scraps of food on the street, I I realized very early on that um, I saw a lot of violence around me and a lot of suffering. And what I started to realize early on is that it's more helpful to be a boy than a girl, to be a man, because men are not getting beaten up, but women are. So I I somehow tried to like convert myself into a boy when I was like two years old or three years old. I had no idea. So I chopped off my head and I would talk to other boys and hang out only with boys, but that didn't make me a boy. So then I dug further on. This is like I'm like around two, three, four years old, and I realized it's not because of the boy, it's whoever makes money. And there were only two, there were two ways of making money. There was one is either Either you were born with it, like you had business and you could run the business or you could get education and you would be able to get a job where you could work. So I figured out that for me, it's a second option. I don't have a business or have any opportunity to have a business. So I should get education. So then I had to figure out how I would get education and that involved going to school and Since I didn't really have anyone rooting for me to go to school, I had to figure out how to do that myself. And for my birthday gift, I asked one of the neighbors that I knew to take me to school so that I could get enrolled in school. And I went there and they said, well, okay, we can give you admission, but we need a name. And I didn't have a name. So they said, come back. And instead I decided that I'm going to, I'm not leaving until I have this. That's going to be my birthday gift to myself is... To get enrolled in school so I asked that friend or whatever my dad's friend to give me a name and that's how I got my name Sangeeta and I got enlisted in school so this is when I was three years old exactly three years old can I can
3: I yeah. stop you for a moment just to yeah. ask a couple of questions I, yeah. am I understanding correctly and this is something that I don't know I'm I think it's so far from a culture that I'm used to you did not have a name when you were born, your parents didn't name you? No. Wow.
2: <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. Um, yeah I, I didn't have a name. There was no reason for me to have a name until you, you knew. You know what? The, <laughs>
3: wow. It's so interesting because they, you know, they talk about girls being undervalued, you know, like you're saying, like a viability, but not necessarily as worthless as in like you're told explicitly like I feel like sometimes the message here in the U.S. it's very implicit it's not something that you're ever told you just learn through the culture and learn through experiences that uh, potentially like opportunities open up for for men or boys more so than they do for women but you're never specifically told
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's kind of why I, I'm, I, I thought this will be an important, you know, just an interesting anecdote to share on yours, because it's focusing on women in, in IT and in healthcare. Because those implicitly those the way the culture sometimes is set up, or just the way things are, you're already set in a different bucket and a different destiny and a different path. So you don't get those same opportunities because you're a woman, you know, uh, or you automatically get excluded. So how how do you handle that and how do you push back against that? And what are the the pressures you face when you push back against that, right? Implicitly at the end of the day, you know, you and I meet each other. We'll do business if we like each other. We feel that sense of trust and that chemistry but if the chemist if the way our cultural norms are the expectation of how a woman is supposed to behave doesn't fit into that norm and she's trying to become a woman leader in some way then does that rub people off a wrong way and does that create this barrier to opportunities yeah it's incredible that even at
3: such a young age and you're
2: telling me it's 3 years old that you realized
3: that an education was important and now, one thing that has come up for me lately is, you know, education is something that nobody can take away from you. Mm-hmm. It is an investment in yourself and you get to be the beneficiary of your hard work. So to understand that at such a young age is very impressive. It's, I mean, I'm I'm just floored by, by <laughs> your
0: experience. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, I think it's what the moment teaches you. You know, I don't i think somebody else in my shoes may have felt or acted the same way it's just what happened through my lenses right and how that formed my thinking and chemistry so thank you so much for saying that but i think it's a lot about the experiences too that that shape where we go uh, and i hope that in that next generations don't have the same challenges and i've actively worked towards that with my own journey that after i you know, fast forward everything, and I became an engineer, and I was the first woman in my family to work ever in my community. It changed the path for all other cousins who came after me, female cousins, because they could say, Look, Sangita, Didi, like, you know, our elder sister, she went, she studied, uh, she, she did professional education, she's working, she's okay. So, your fear that I will not be okay is not valid. You know, so my all my cousins, younger cousins after me, female cousins, they all got to have the opportunity to decide if they wanted to study or work in professional education. So it, it can
1: make a big difference, you know? It's amazing. I, I, I think make a big difference is an understatement. I think in hearing you articulate those challenges, and I cannot even begin to imagine, I am just floored at the impact that that must have had, not just for you, but like you said, the other people you knew that came behind you, especially in your family. And, you know, at a very high level and looking to see you're the CEO of Health. You're a very involved nurse, an RN of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're the policy advisor to the Moonshoot mission, to you're the national chair for the Oncology of Nursing Society. You're an engineer, you're an inventor you are involved in so many things. Tell us more about that nursing education and what you've done, what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, sure. So nursing education. So after I I was in IT uh, and I decided that I'm going to, I had some health issues myself and I kind of had to find my way back to Uh, being able to live the quality of life that I wanted. And to do that, I had to understand both Eastern and Western medicine and be able to leverage the best of both for myself in an evidence-based way. And that helped me to find my path back to be able to do what I wanted to do with my life. So I decided at that moment that I'm going to devote my life to helping others have that quality of life that they want uh, and being able to empower them with, uh, with actionable hope, with the path that can help them. So that's where my journey began in healthcare. So I did both Eastern and Western medicine alongside. So I studied uh, Ayurveda and yoga, went back to studying because my grandfather was a Vedya. So I did learn Ayurveda growing up. So I went back to studying that and did that at uh, you know at a clinical level. Um, so several years of training, three, four years of training. And alongside, I, uh, I ran my own clinic uh, for uh, behavior change, disease management, and managing day-to-day health. And alongside, I did nursing. So I went back to school. I got my bachelor's in uh, nursing. And I, I realized my interest has been always in in the whole person approach, you know, because uh, the physical, mental, Uh, social and your environment all affect your health outcomes. And that's why I really liked nursing because it focuses on that continuity. So I went into nursing, I did my bachelor's, I worked at Mayo Clinic in oncology. And then I came back to Bay Area, I worked at Stanford again in uh, cancer care, uh, in outpatient cancer care, because I wanted to empower people to be able to have good outcomes and good quality of life at home. And uh, then I started to try and figure out, well, uh, the challenges that we are seeing today and we, we struggle with when I'm in my hospital, in my clinic, are the very same issues that I'm actually having good outcomes and able to support people in my private practice or in holistic practice. So something doesn't match up here. And I think it's about, uh, it's about having access to all that education and information, behavior change and support. Uh, that will allow this uh, to happen. Is that really possible? Can you use supportive care for clinical outcomes? Uh, not just I feel better when I do yoga or massage, but can it actually have a clinical impact? So, with that in mind, I started having conversation with some of the the researchers, and that led me to working on putting together this manual, co-authoring, and working on this manual that used the whole health approach a multimodal whole health approach to addressing people's uh, healthcare challenges for breast cancer patients post-treatment. So they had a lot of physical, emotional um, side effects and difficulty in being able to go back to the life that they had before and return to work. So, so that's the population we focused on. We got an NIH grant. We worked on the study for several years and we got very good outcomes. So we saw significant improvement in, in all aspects of life, physical, emotional uh, activities of daily living and the sense of uh, self-concept. So we were invited to apply for the Next Level grant. And I started to wonder at that time, well, we helped. 30 40 people and if we do the next grant that's great you know we don't know what the chances of getting it are but assuming even if we get it we'll be able to help a few hundred or few more thousand people but there are millions of people today just on cancer alone who are struggling with these uh, with these symptoms physically emotionally and struggling to get back and their families are too because About one in 2.5 people have cancer in their lifetime. And uh, 90% of cancer patients do have side effects. And many of them have lingering side effects long term. And about 40% of cancer patients are going bankrupt in the first uh, two years uh, of their treatment. And I was seeing all those pictures playing right in front of my eyes for everyone when I knew there were ways of supporting them and making their life better. And being able to do that in a scalable way. So I knew I had to do something to give that hope and power back to people. And that's where I looked into, I started talking about it. And I was introduced to NSF program, ICAR program. um, And Steve Blank himself uh, mentored me and UCSF invited me to do the program and see if there was a commercial path for the work that we were doing and there was. So the UCSF team continued to support me with guidance and, and other resources. And that's where HelpSee was born. So essentially it incorporates two main things. It's a clinical engine. Uh, it's an engine with a lot of knowledge. And what it does is it automatically creates a whole health care plan, which is based on four pillars, physical, emotional, social, and support services for every or every person that is personalized as much as possible on several factors and then we have world's first ai nurse artificial intelligence nurse for symptom management and navigation so this nurse stays throughout with the patient from beginning to end supporting them through the process so being able to anticipate what they need and educate and support them do some of the real time education for symptoms or or navigation issues that may come up and seeing If a patient's condition is declining, if they are reporting that, then giving them guidance on how to connect back to the clinician. So that's the core of uh, what the platform does. You know, I'm looking at some of the things that you're measuring.
3: I'm on your website, and it looks like you're measuring patient feels their certainty about the future and satisfaction with their life and happiness in general or their overall physical health. And... That kind of crosses over into two things. One, the social determinants of health, which is, you know, basically like the pop-up keyword that keeps showing up for folks, but also patient-reported outcomes. And so you're really getting information directly from the patients here. Have you been able to connect the dots? I'm I'm coming selfishly from our MIPS MACRA value-based care conversation, but really thinking about, like, hey, how does it fit? Because what you're doing is trying to provide value to the patient, very much so. Have Have you thought about how it
2: fits into value-based care? Oh, it totally fits into value-based care. I mean, that's that's our whole business model is is value-based is based on value-based care. Because um, when we actually started started doing this, uh, you know, Joy, I did not know about the financial impact of the solution i just i wanted to help people i wanted to address those challenges and i could see based on the data that there was clinical impact to the work that we were doing and it was clear to me as you know i was saying earlier in uh, in my in the introduction that based on my own life i could see that if you don't have food to eat how can you tell somebody to eat higher quality food if you don't have transportation, you're not obviously going to have a hundred percent failure in compliance to go to your appointment. So the social determinant of health are the prerequisites in my mind uh, for being able to access care or to be able to um, have good outcomes in in care. So that's why the social determinants are deeply tied into, into what the health outcomes will be. Because if someone is not able to afford taking a medication, their their med adherence is zero. There there is no, you know, way around it. So those social determinants and access to resources are something we seriously wanted to think about and see what's there and leverage those in the work we were doing. And then uh, for symptoms, patient reported outcomes, that's where we are looking under the surface on what are really the issues that are happening day to day? uh, What are the patient-reported outcomes, the symptoms that people are struggling with, and how do we empower them to manage that on their own or to let them know that they need escalated care. And When we started doing more and more studies in this area and we started to to deploy it at centers, that's when we actually found out that this is helping to reduce treatment disruptions and it's significantly helping to reduce those emergency department visits, urgent care, and hence uh, it's improving cost savings uh, by several thousand dollars per cancer patient. And that's why it fits very well into value-based care. So our business model is completely based on that. We focus on improving performance, revenue sharing. Uh, we focus on revenue sharing for for improving these outcomes and providing value-based care. So that's why we work with uh, insurance companies. We work with, with providers uh, that are focused on value-based care to help them with being able to achieve these goals at scale. Users of your app... Who is the, who's the ideal client?
3: Is it something that's for, is it something for everybody or do they necessarily need like um, a diagnosis of breast cancer? And that's your target audience.
2: Yeah. So we have two types of users. So it's where we are focusing on is on um, critical illness, complex diseases uh, like cancer, because it's a sudden change in a patient's life and, family's life. And and they have to handle a lot of things on their own. So at a point of such huge uh, distress and need for for a lot of support and information, we feel that that is the best place for us to be able to step in and provide the support to um, to the members. So we are focused on complex diseases um, like cancer, providing that that's uh, concierge symptom management navigation support we also can handle other areas like mental health we are doing that we are doing pain management and and addiction we are doing multi-chronic disease patients so those are some of the main things that we are able to do we also have some aging related uh, disorders and and surgery, like transplant and surgery, so those are some of the types of patients that we uh, we can handle. Our primary focus has been on cancer, but we are working with these other population set. And the symptom clusters we find a lot of people with those individual symptom clusters. Sometimes will use it, like if they have pain or they have anxiety or they have a sleep problem. They they like to use the solution. So that that's the. That's the end user of the solution in terms of who buys the solution from us. It's uh, typically uh, insurance companies and it's um, uh, it's value based care providers, uh, as well as pharma has recently also started to work with us because um, they are seeing a huge value, both in the commercial in being able to support the patients during while they're taking some of the, the treatments as well as in clinical trials, because again, we are making a very significant impact there in supporting the patient and helping them to stay on the clinical trials. So for these, we have some, um, some work going on, partnerships in progress.
1: That's what I was going to say. It looks like the research studies you guys have that basically, uh, from a holistic perspective overall, people are seeing improvements in pain, quality of life, and just being able to better manage something, because cancer treatment, let's face it, is really rough on the human body. Um, are you guys hoping to do more of those research studies to just further prove that through the partners and the folks you're working with, Sangeeta?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We we are very much committed to continuing to do more work in this area. We are, uh, as you see on our site, we, uh, we work with, with the top researchers in the industry worldwide in in trying to understand what do people need and how we can better serve them and are we doing the best we can in providing those services to our solution and being able to measure those. So we have um, applied for some of those NIH grants as well as uh, some of the work that we do in partnerships we try to always see if there is a way to bring researchers into the picture so that we can, we can dig further and be able to understand what is the impact of the work and what exactly are the parameters that are helping to impact those numbers so that as a community, our knowledge grows from that. Um, so we're definitely very much involved in this. Uh, if you see today's research, there's a decent amount of research on patient reported outcomes uh, and on individual symptoms, right? Like um, what is the impact on anxiety or what is the impact on depression or fatigue in cancer? But there is, I think, more work is being starting to be done now on symptom clusters because they all coexist. And so there is a lot more work being done in symptom clusters, especially at UCSF and several other centers. At the same time, we are early in the digital exploration phase because I just came back from a conference, MASK, which is for supportive care in cancer, where I had the opportunity to give keynote and talk, interact with the researchers. And we uh, we are in the early stages of understanding patient-reported outcomes, uh, leveraging technology. I think there is a lot of hype, but there is also a lot of hope. And somewhere in the middle is the reality of what platforms and technologies can do. So researchers are now working on trying to understand these technologies and tools and see are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Can we improve the tools with this knowledge that we have so that it can provide better care? So it's starting to be looked at from those clinical perspective, from product usability perspective, just in the overall industry. And I think where we need to start going more and some of the early research is starting to happen in this area is on the impact on finances. As well as on the longevity longevity of the patient, so do these impact the life of the patient? And Ethan B- Ethan Bash has done some work in this area, which has been groundbreaking and set the um, has been the trailblazer on that. And I know there's a lot more work now starting to happen in those areas, and we we are in- involved in this, and we try to figure out ways that we can contribute to research and to the growth of the community in that regard. So, what is the impact on the on the lifetime of the patient um, if we can keep them engaged long-term uh, as well as what is the impact on the finances? Does it impact claims data? Does it impact return to work data? Things like
1: that. Well, I have to say, I think help C-Health is striking the balance between the hype and the reality because you're using the technology, you're using the app, the artificial intelligence through the stand nurse, you're using the technology and the platforms, which I think you, kind of people talk about is the hype, but the mission to be holistic, to meet the patient where they are on the things that worry them day in and day out in treatment, post-treatment as a result of being impacted by cancer is the reality of the mission that you're trying to fulfill in supporting these patients. And I think the thing that strikes me, Sangeeta, is You're not out there kind of playing for the money, if you will. You're playing for the win in that mission with your patients to impact their lives. And so I think the fact that you're able to meet them where they are with the everyday realities that are worrying them, that are of concern to them, that can prepare them through an appointment through the AI nurse, I think it sounds like you guys are at a beautiful intersection between hype and reality where it matters most. Wow. I couldn't have said
2: it any better. <laughs> this is, uh, you, you said it so, so beautifully. Yeah. That's, that's technology is a tool. It's an enabler and it needs to be used, right? Like a knife, right? It can help you to, to cut fruits and vegetables and make your life so much easier, but you could use that same tool to hurt someone uh, if it's not used correctly. So to me, technology is the tool and it is our responsibility as innovators, as people with clinical background, as patients, whatever, whatever hat we want to put on, that we leverage technology, we bake technology with the, in the right way um, so that it serves humanity instead of hurting humanity. And secondly, from, I think, a hype perspective, it's important to know what technology can do Today, what is the maturity of the technology and present accordingly, because as much as it sounds exciting to think about a future where, you know, uh, technology can do things that we can see in movies, the reality is what technology can do today and what are the risks of those and being able to to understand those uh, at a deeper level the the capabilities of the technology and where the limitations are and designing your solution in a way that it serves people within those parameters and conveying those right expectations is very very important like two things come to my mind when i think about this one is on, and our solution, a lot of times people will say, well, okay, why not just use AI and AI alone, that nurse will be able to do everything, you know, just market it as that instead of saying, well, we will escalate the care if the education or the recommendations are not sufficient to a real clinician, because it sounds a lot cooler, that <laughs> the AI nurse can do everything. But the reality is that technology is not there yet. We cannot do that. We don't know enough clinical knowledge. I was studying AI very early on, you know, in the late 90s. uh, My bachelor's focus was AI. When I came here to US, my master's focus was on uh, artificial intelligence. So as much as I'm excited about it, I know what it can do today and what it cannot do. So being clear about that, even if it doesn't sound as cool and and as exciting is very important because we need to make sure that we are conveying truthfully, what the technology can do today safely. So that's from a technical standpoint. Uh, From a clinical standpoint too, I think it's important to understand how your technology is baked and who bakes it, because that person is essentially building the brain of the solution, right? So they're telling the solution, behave this way, give this type of answer, make these decisions. So it's very important to involve experts, involve the right people in building your clinical engine because those, those will determine what happens to the thousands and millions and potentially billions of people who will use the platform. The impact on them will be based on the decision that was made by the person who baked it. So that's why we try to be very careful. We have a committee uh, for our clinical engine and knowledge that includes researchers. It includes all different kinds of clinicians. It includes patient advocates. It includes uh, designers. It includes people who think from ethical perspective to see okay, is this delivering the right knowledge to the right person? And is it making the right ethical decisions? Are we accidentally leaving someone out or doing something that may not not be right? And those are very important things for us to be thinking about when we are looking at developing health technology, especially leveraging artificial intelligence or machine learning.
1: I'm so so glad to hear that you are so thoughtful into the end-to-end design approach. Of a, a multidisciplinary feedback of all of those different stakeholders and groups, as you guys are looking to grow. And so, speaking of the future, let me ask question number two:
2: mm-hmm. If you
1: could snap your fingers and fix one thing in healthcare or health IT, and this is this is a loaded question because you're a holistic nurse, an engineer, an entrepreneur, a CEO. I mean, it, it you have so much ex- deep experience to draw off of if you could fix one thing in healthcare, health IT, what's, what's your answer? What would it be?
2: I think if I could change one thing, it would be to figure out if there was a way to reset alignment of incentives or to build that bridge that aligns incentives between all the various stakeholders. And it truly puts patient in the center of it. That's what I would ideally love to do because we were just talking about value-based care a minute ago. And and you see today the way our healthcare system is, it's siloed. I'm a person, I come with my physical, my emotional, all my challenges. If, if, I, if I'm depressed, I'm overeating and I'm, I'm not exercising. So my physical health is linked to my emotional health. But in the way our healthcare system, we are looking at it, we are looking at one specific portion of a person's life and not the whole person. So I would want that we start to look at whole person and their environment, everything coming together because they all have very deep interactions with one another. And the organizations that have the money or that have the power and influence on what is the outcome of this person they can be aligned, and I know I'm because I can get a wish, so I'm wishing it. <laughs> it's a it's a very tough uh, path, but to be able to align the incentives of the of the end user, their family, of the employers, of the payers, of the pharma, of the government, so that it all is in harmony and it's helpful and streamlined, would be my my wish and my desire, and what I strive to do in my life with being able to improve this quality of life and bring the players together. So that would be my wish. I think things are starting to move in that direction, which is very, very exciting because I think we are starting to recognize that we are starting to recognize that we can't operate as silos when we don't talk to one another and don't understand each other's incentives and create a win-win in the long term, It does come back, you know, boomerang back and hurt us. So we are starting to see that payer, Pharma partnerships forming. We are starting to see provider payer partnerships forming, moving towards value-based care. We are starting to see more of the voice of patient being included in every aspect of healthcare. I think we are in the early stages of it. So I hope that we continue to have more leaders and more focus on this so that it is aligned in a way that it it does improve everyone's. It does bring everyone together with the goal of empowering an Individual to be able to live their life to the fullest as they are, you know, as a whole person. Well, I think that is a
3: beautiful sentiment, and as far as wishes go, they should be ambitious. Like, that sounds fantastic. That's that, that kudos to you on your wish. We'll all try to work towards that. Yeah, and means yeah. to our final question, we are have been really having a lot of fun collaborating on book lists and sharing reading and making sure that people in our community are kind of raising their literacy and education in health IT. So is there any book that has really made an impact on you that you think other women or just others in the industry should know about?
2: Well, I read on the healthcare side, that's easy for me to say. Uh, <laughs> so let me start with that. Uh, and then I can think more on a deeper personal level, uh, what uh, what I like. So I, I really like um, the recent book by Eric Topol on deep medicine. I thought he's, I think he's written that really well and shared good perspective. There is a book by Emmanuel Fumbu. I really like his book As well, forgetting the title of the book, I'm sorry. Uh, I also liked uh, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, you know, because he talks about what really matters in medicine, and especially he talks about end of life as a cancer nurse. That's something I see and I deal with um, and try to support my patients in, in that question. Um, so I really like liked uh, his book on that topic. He has a couple other books. Like I really like all of Atul Kamande's books, you know. Yeah, I like that one. The Patient Will See You Now. I really like that book. There is also a lot of good work that is done by, I think, the Medical Futurist, that group. So I really like their work as well. And then there's one more I like book, uh, uh, Innovator's Prescription. Uh, so those are all on the on the health innovation side that I really like those books. And Emmanuel Fambu's book is called The Future of Healthcare. On the business side, uh, the, the one book that I like, I mean, it's more like a pres- prescription book, but I, it helps me as an entrepreneur is a couple of books that help me. One is uh, it's called Measure What Matters. It's a book on OKRs. It's actually on like milestone planning. Yeah, yeah so yeah yeah, so you've seen that right so so I like that book because it it gives me clarity on how do I measure the impact of what I'm doing from a business perspective so I really like that one Uh, I like uh, this book The One Thing because as again as an entrepreneur I find myself juggling so many things at one time and trying to decide or trying to boil the ocean and do it all and many times I have to step back and say, okay, what is the thing that matters and where do I focus my energy? So there's a book called The One Thing. I really like that book.
3: There, <laughs> that'll be enough for our for our book club for a while. <laughs> um
1: so Gita, before yeah. before I ask you the last question, can yeah. I go back to kind of where you started some of this? Yeah. So you really shared with us a lot about your culture, really yeah. some very humble beginnings, identifying at an early age that that you are pushing back against societal norms and elevating yourself through education and sharing with us those special moments to really have a name to get involved in school. I guess I have two questions. At what point in time, as this holistic nurse, as an engineer, as someone that's an entrepreneur, somebody that's been part of Medics at Stanford and doing all these things, did you ever think that where that began, do you ever look back over all of those efforts and feel like you had a roadmap to where you are now? And what do you think that roadmap holds in another three to five to 10 years?
2: Wow, that's a beautiful question. Um, Robin, you know, when I, you know, in, yeah, so, I don't know, maybe this is a little more philosophical answer, maybe, but we humans have a finite time on Earth. Each one of us has a certain amount of time on the planet. I think our... Whether you call it consciousness is connected or progress that our humanity makes, it's interconnected. It takes time, it takes people. You know, women didn't start voting because one, one woman decided that we are going to start voting. It took years and a whole movement to change where women are today and the opportunities that we have today whether you look at it from a women perspective, healthcare technology, whatever perspective you want to look at, things take time and they take groups of people. They take warriors who are passionate about moving that field forward, moving that area forward, whether they are the end uh, benefiter of that fruit or not. We can hope for that, but we don't know. So when I look at my life, and the journey beyond, I think of myself as a piece that fits into that puzzle of trying to move things forward for for us as human beings, whether it is, you know, improving where women are, whether it is improving how we look at healthcare and looking at the value that Eastern and Western brings together, or looking at technology where what the how we bring the past and the future together in a responsible way. So in any of these pieces of the puzzle, I, I just see myself a, in all these areas. I see myself a piece of the puzzle uh, who started at point A and I'm trying to make the journey and doing what I can every day to add value back to humanity. I don't know where it will take me three to five years from now or where it will take me when the end of my life and the next generation that will come after me. But I hope and continue this pursuit of empowering people to have better quality of life for uh, empowering people to have actionable hope and empowering people to have equality. So my past is a reflection of where I started and where I am today. And I continue to hope that I, I can make a difference in lives of others and by doing that it elevates me in the process I've had to learn myself to uh, to come out of the shadows and step in the front even though I'm very conscious about that Um, and I would (laughs) rather be in the shadows but I've had to learn to step forward so that I can I can do what I can to contribute. So philosophically, that's how I see myself as a piece. In a concrete way, I think every experience that I had in the past, it's like exercising a muscle. You know, if I don't run for for a couple of months, I find myself I'm really unfit and I can't do a 5K. It's the same way. I was... All the experiences I had at an early age, they exercised my tenacity muscle and they exercised my resilience and emotional strength and being scrappy and entrepreneurial, you know, at a very early age to try and figure out this is the situation now. What do I do about it? What can I, you know, how do I handle the cards that I'm dealt with? And how do I handle failure? How do I handle unfair situation and still continue a path forward? How do I take risk and, you know, hope for the moon but land on the roof? Uh, So those were things that I learned at a very early age and that helped to build me to what I am today. Where I see going from here three to five years from now I think somehow when you turn 40, I don't know if this applies to other people, but I just got more comfortable with myself, you know, like, okay, this is who I am. This is my life and I can step into it and own it. So what I hope to do in the next three to five years is two things. One is from from a professional perspective, developing solutions that empower people to have good quality of life, to bring uh, research and information to them at their fingertips with usable solutions. And then on a personal level, where I want to go is I want to be, I want to move the conversation forward and opportunities, more opportunities for women and the role of women um, and shed more light on some of the challenges that we face or the barriers that we face. And then working actively with other people to either raise awareness of those issues or to work on improving those situations uh, in a much more deeper way than I have so far. So that's my my goal. Thank you. Dad. I can't tell you how big my smile is over here. <laughs> and I think the
3: same is true for Robin. <laughs> like we are just both really, really happy to get to know you and be impressed by everything that you're up to and how far you've come. So if people want to find you, where would they look? If do you have social media accounts that people can hop onto your journey, and what's your website and all of that good stuff?
2: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Joy and Robin, for this opportunity. I love what you are doing. <laughs> I've been, like I was saying from early age, I've been trying to be a boy just so I could I could do the things that. I should have been able to do and raise awareness of that, you know, to be a techie, to be a healthcare, to be a leader. And the work that you are doing with raising awareness about it and raising voices of women like me, I'm so grateful for that. And thank you so much for, you know, um, for asking about how people can find me. So people can find our company on HelpSeeHealth, H-E-L-P-S-Y, h-e-a-l-t-h.com com. we also have presence on all the social media channels uh, linkedin facebook twitter so they can find information about the company there they can also find me on twitter on san Helpsy. that's my handle s-a-n-h-e-l-p-s-y or oh, they can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook, very active on social media. So I try to share what I learn and elevate um, or share what I've learned from other people and be part of this community. So I would love to get to know know your audience and interact with them and hear from them about their story, their journey, their passion, what they're doing, what they want to do um, so that together we all continue to build a better future. Well, this has been really helpful. And it's one of the ways I love. One thing, thank you for your
3: compliments about what we're doing here. Really appreciate it. A lot of what I see is that we're connecting people and helping people understand who's out there, what work are they doing, and how can they collaborate and support each other. And so happy to have you to be part of this this growing community. This is great.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, anyone who's doing work in quality of life for people in healthcare, I'm very, very interested in talking to them. Anyone who's doing work in cancer, of course, I'm interested in talking to them. Women who are working together to raise the voice of women leaders, I'm very interested in that, and I'm very, and especially, I'm very much interested in in raising the voice of women of color. But I think women of color face different challenges even today. And there are not a lot of role models in that area. So I hope to meet more people who are in this space and have a community and, and continue to build more leaders in uh, women of color. Mm,
3: wonderful. I. Me
2: too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> I, this is great. Um, would you tell me a little bit about your journey, like how how you came about doing this and what what motivates you? Yeah, this is, so this is Joy. Um, I,
3: you know, I've been a champion of women. When I think about my life, I recently turned 40 as well and sort of have this like, okay, well, what really matters? And what do I, what do I want to do? What is my, you know, vision for my life? And, you know, even when I was graduating from college, I had an English degree here in San Diego and ended up working for a women's surfing magazine. Mm. And so, you see, like, even, this is probably back in the early, 20 years ago, back in the early 2000s, and it allowed me some insight because I used to work in this publishing building that had the men's they had a men's surfing magazine, they had a men's bodyboarding magazine, and then we were in the corner and had our women's. And everything, you could just see the disparity of what was funded, what had sponsors, what was, you know, there was a culture of support kind of embedded in the the men's, but for us, Mm -hmm. it was a struggle the whole time. And I think I've just kind of carried that mission with me through everything that I've done of just like trying to support the women in my life whether I know them or not. And last year in particular, and I was working we didn't have this or this company where Robin and I were still working together, but we were working for another organization. I had gone to a healthcare conference and lo and behold, I've actually found out later that this conference was organized by women. But what really—it was kind of like the last straw on my back uh, when I went to um, a session about learning about women's health, and it was uh-huh. all around women's health. And up on the stage were four men, four <laughs> men talking about women, and I was like, "This is ridiculous! This—how can they come from a place of authority to talk about women's health and what we go, what we go through?" On, And it wasn't that they had bad intentions or anything, they're not bad people. It's just not representative. That's all, like bottom line. And so I kind of just decided, all right, time to get in the arena. And I'm here I am waiting for somebody else to do it. And I was like, Robin, I got this idea. (laughs) We're doing it, how do you feel? And I don't know, (laughs) and we kind of jumped in. We jumped in last August around the same time that we had a shift in our career and just decided like, okay, well this is going to be part of it. And so we have our, we have a consulting firm that has, you know, that's where we make our money. But to be honest, for me, this podcast, which isn't something that we do for money, it's something that we do because it feels good. It's sort of a passion project. Like it, it really feels like, that's the part of my growing career that, fulfills me of like being able to amplify these people and shine a light on them and say look at look at her she's amazing and you should know her and make your connections and so it hasn't quite been a year but it has certainly been an interesting journey and Robin I'll let you chime in so I won't hog anymore
1: (laughs) no I just um you know in helping on the policy stuff I don't love the policies that the U.S. health system has, like you said, like it should be centered around the patients and their outcomes and what's going on and recognition of patient-specific goals and what they want, right? Because what quality of life is for one patient doesn't mean it is for another. And so I, I started helping the health policy stuff so that physicians could just, I could help them do it easily and efficiently and make money so that they could stay in business and be autonomous and independent instead of helping, you know, the C-suite grow richer. And just because I believe healthcare at the end of the day is between a physician and a patient, period. Mm -hmm. Um, And that every patient's journey is unique. And uh, Joy's been really supportive. Our youngest son had a rare disease um, Mm -hmm. for about two and a half years. And uh, he passed last September. So I think at the point that we had been working together for so long and had seen her write the book, it really, by the time I'm 40 here this year, kind of to Joy's point, I'm sitting there just realizing how small my piece of the puzzle is in healthcare, even though I know a lot of different arenas. Mm-hmm. And so we're always so humbled to meet people and hear about their experiences, their the areas they've gotten involved in in their pieces of the puzzle. You know, and hearing you talk about AI and the stuff you do, that's still pretty foreign to us. And so it's just It's just been such a whirlwind, but it has just been so lovely to meet these women that are doing all of this amazing work. And we're finding more often than not, they're thanking other people or getting involved in other people or or, or getting involved in acknowledging other people that like, hey, we we need to elevate you and what you're doing. And so it's really just been a beautiful journey to listen and learn from all of them. And so, uh, yeah, the consulting is the bread and butter. That's what pays the bills. But uh, this is the fun part this is the part where we get to just learn from others
2: yeah this is this is so amazing I mean wow wow both your journey is so inspiring and to to step in and say okay instead of waiting for someone else to do it I see the need and I'm gonna make it happen you know I'm gonna figure out along the way how to make it happen but this needs to be well, different I, I'm not yeah waiting. I
3: think it's so cool. I'm not waiting anymore, and it's you know, Brene Brown talks about it in yeah. her talks of just like getting in the arena, and I think that there's been a real shift with women in general over the last three years of just like, especially after the last election, of just like, okay, no more sitting on the sidelines. If we want to really, you know, have influence in what our future is, then we need to be at the table, and. Right yeah
2: yeah so true okay. so true yeah <laughs> we have to be at the table otherwise we don't know if the table will get taken away or it will move further <laughs> exactly
3: yeah exactly
2: i love what you're doing thank you so much for this opportunity and uh, what is the best way to keep in touch with you and to follow you and your work because i'm sure ah. you be doing a lot of great things so well, we're on
3: yep, we're, we're on Twitter, we're at Hit Like a Girl Pod and you can both follow me and Robin individually. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a LinkedIn group that we are we have a LinkedIn um, for Hit Like a Girl. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to think about well, we've collaborated on the book there's a book club there's an online book club that we do based on the books that other women have recommended. And so every Tuesday we've collaborated with a couple other ladies, so you might be interested in knowing. They it's under the hashtag HT reads, so Health Tech Reads, and it's Tuesday night at 9:30 um, Eastern. It's one hour where we talk about a book that somebody has recommended. It's just a virtual book club. So if you're interested in I don't know how much you do Twitter chatting, but that is that's something that we've been doing.
1: And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at
0: hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.